Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hi, this is Ryan Fraser. This is Troy Daly. This is Gus Boyet. This is Don Hutchison. This is Jürgen Klopp, and you're listening to the big interview with Graham Hunter. Thank you, Jürgen. I travel to all these interviews from Barcelona, and our socios, our beloved members, keep us on the road. This independent podcast wouldn't happen without them. Please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter right now to join us, to become a socio, and to get every interview we produce without adverts and before it goes out on the main feed, plus lots of bonus content, including the chance to put questions to our guests and to me via the monthly Q&A. You will also get bonus content every month, including the audio versions of my regular columns for ESPN. So do please go to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and join the club and get your family and friends to do so. Maybe even strangers in the street. Love you. On the night of June 14, 2008, myself and my good friend, long-suffering Sunderland fan, Ian Holyman, were refreshing ourselves in a bar called Solo Vino, only wine, on Universitat Strasse in Innsbruck. Euro 2008 had just taken wing. Spain had beaten Sweden with a last-minute goal from David Villa to qualify for the knockout rounds of the European Championships. And across a crowded bar, I spotted somebody that I'd seen before and his defensive partner. They were Joachim Bjorklund and Patrick Anderson. Joachim, Jockey Bjorklund, came over and said, I've seen you under Vista de la Liga. He went on to intimate that he didn't mind my patter too much. And the encounter led to a long and very robust drinking session, which we enjoyed. And we've been friends ever since. I'm Graham Hunter. This is the big interview. I think I've given you sufficient clues that today's guest is going to be the marvellous Jockey Bjorklund. He was a former colleague of mine at La Liga Television until he went back to coach, help coach Hammarby in his native Sweden. But Jockey, remember, was a very key part of the Sweden international side that reached the semis in two successive tournaments, Euro 92 in his home nation and then, spectacularly, USA 94. In the first part of this very enjoyable interview, 
we're going to spend a lot of time talking about those experiences. So, expect some names you maybe haven't heard for a while. Do you remember Brolin, Ravelli, Tony Daly? No, he's not Swedish. So come on, relive these tournaments from the point of view of young Mr Bjorklund, elevated quickly into the national team, and not because his uncle was the coach. And by the way, Dandy's fans... There's a little Gothenburg mention in here. Enjoy part one of Jockey Brooklyn on the big interview. Again, to you listeners, um, if you're on the video version of this, then you can already see. If you're not, then I'm going to tell you who we're with. Well, with somebody who I'm um, privileged to call a friend, and he's got the freedom and he knows it to deny that during the podcast. So this is more than a guest. A guest um, who, when we first met, um, encouraged me to go and tell a Champions League winner that he had a fat arse. That's how good friendships really, truly begin. Well, with Joachim, Jockey, Jockey Bjorklund. Uh, Jockey, first of all, good evening. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, good to be here. Jockey, um, I've saved, uh, we've never done um, a true-false round to begin any of the big interviews before, but this is not long answers, this this is true-false, and, and I'd only ask you, no lying, because you've got a devilish sense of humour. So, here we go, Jockey, are you ready? This is true-false. Jockey, you could easily name, as a football in Sweden, your all-time cricketing eleven taking in all major cricket, cricket countries and eras. True or false? Uh, true, for sure. Jockey Brooklyn, even though only 12 and not in possession of Wellington boots or a Macintosh, you were sitting in the pouring rain of the European Cup Winners' Cup final in 1983 in the Ulevi Stadium in Gothenburg, cheering on the mighty dandies. True or false? True, with my granddad. Jockey, your father played for your uncle at Usters and very nearly knocked out the European champions in season 1979-80. Mm, I wouldn't call it very nearly, but uh, he played him. He played him. We're taking it. Jockey Bjorkland, you played international football for your country at the Camp Nou. No, that's false. International football. For my country? For uh, No, 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 I did. I did. Yes. Olympics. It's true. Jockey Bjorklund, like Wes Brown of Manchester United, secrets galore now, you are partial to a little bit of sluice. Uh, that's probably true, yeah. But I'm a Swede, I got an excuse. Jockey Bjorklund, you twice helped your club reach the Champions League final. Mm, yeah, partly true. Didn't participate <laughs> much in the last season, though, but yeah, sure. I'll take that, it sounds good. I'll take that. Mr. Jockey Bjorklund, you were within one win of reaching the World Cup final and within two wins of an Olympic gold medal. Uh, true on the first one, for sure. And I'd say three wins, Olympic gold medal, right? Because we lost in the quarterfinals. That was the one. Yeah, yeah. That was the only false one. Yeah, that's the false one. Really good. Yeah. Really good afternoon. Last two, you currently coach a team where a splendid young Iraqi midfielder is named after an Argentinian teammate of yours. That's true. Though he's Swedish. True. Last one, and I've already hinted at this. You once told me to tell Patrick Anderson that 
he had a fat arse. And Patrick was deeply unimpressed. True, but I mean, in the end, we measured. He had the biggest arse in the Swedish national team. We did a few measurements, and it's true. <laughs> who, who, did, who did the measurement? You weren't out there on a tape measure. No, no, I wasn't. About? He's a friend of mine. <laughs> you understand. All right, let, let, let's, let's go all the way back, because you are genuinely, and, and thanks for the fun, you're part of a dynasty. Like you said, your granddad was the president of Göteborg. Your uncle was a talented coach who coached the national team. Your dad was a talented footballer and eventually a, a talented coach. Um, and now we already know that your boys play football and Carlos played for you at Hammerby. L- let's go back to Osters and explain what I mentioned about your dad playing against the European champions because that must have been a gigantic occasion. Nottingham Forest had beaten a Swedish team to win the European Cup and in the first round of the next season, they yeah. got to town. Uh, in retrospect, uh, obviously a shame to get the reigning champions in the first round, but uh, Öster, my local team, where my d- d- granddad was the president for uh, 46 or 48 years, uh, won the league uh, and got drawn against Nottingham, Nottingham Forest, with Peter Shilton, Viv Anderson, Larry Lloyd, etc. Uh, and that's actually my first trip abroad. Uh, it's 80, I think, and the whole family went to England to watch the game, to Nottingham, to City Ground. Uh, so I remember the, the game pretty well, and you say it was close, but I think in the two games, it wasn't even that close. But there you go. Good experience. Literally, what was the atmosphere like? Because if I'm not wrong, I think just a Tony Woodcock goal in one of the matches makes a difference. And you pointed out that you know it was full of elite footballers. John Robertson, like I mentioned, Woodcock. John McGovern from you know, an Aberdonian life. Uh, we're getting Scottish, right? Uh, listen, baby, there's going to be so much of this. You have no idea how much you're going to get of this. We're going to talk about Ilya Kiryakov in the World Cup. Man, it's just going to come at you. Also, the World Cup, the Olympic medal was denied to you by Australia. You didn't know that he, they were coached by Aberdeen centre half, Eddie Thompson. So don't open Pandora's box. Oh, no, no, no. It's going to be Aberdeen okay. all the way. And by the way, I enjoyed my, my years in Scotland as well, so no worries. But seriously, what, what does it do to a relatively small town? when they draw the champions and, and what was the what was it like for your father at that stage because he was one of the team's stars and your uncle was coach right? Probably a good thing for him but uh, then again uh, in those days for uh, younger watchers or listeners uh, it wasn't like Champions League you had one head-to-head meeting uh, and they were either in or out and, and to get drawn against the champions in the first game it's a little bit of an unlucky, I'd say. And the year after, they got by Munich in the first round as well, which wasn't much better. But, you know, great experience playing against some of the best players in the world, reigning champions, and I'm sure he enjoyed it. But he would have enjoyed more to get a couple of easy draws and advance, I think, to be honest. Can you... And, and history is repeating itself at the moment because your boy Kala is a centre half for Hammerby. But 
You, if I'm not wrong, you end up playing for your dad quite early in your career, right? As coach. Yeah, I even played with my dad as a player when he, when he played. Uh, my last season was his. My first season was his last season. In now we're talking Oster again, and we played together for five or six games in, in the top division of Sweden. And uh, then a few years later, I had him as a coach and. Uh, for me, it was a good experience. It was a good experience. I was there before him. He came after me, so it wasn't like uh, any talk about nepotism or what have you. And I enjoyed it. He was a good coach, and he still is. And most of everything is still is still my dad. And now I'm in the same situation, which, to be honest, from a coach's point of view, is a bit tricky at the time because uh, you have to divide it you're either a father or you're a coach and uh, you can't have it both so we've decided that privately I'm his dad and at work I'm his coach and that's the way it works and it gets a little bit harder for him to get in the team but that's that's part of it isn't it did you and your dad speak about it because when he coached you I think it's at Bran right in yeah, yeah right and, and, and but so you know the modern way is to talk and to share but maybe some years ago football wasn't quite so keen on that so how did you and Carl Kalla your dad after whom your son's named how did you work that one out nah, he just told me to play better and that was it and I said yeah <laughs> and I said yes coach or yes, Dad, depending on the environment. Uh, no, it was different at that time. But uh, fortunately enough, I had uh, a season before in the in the first team, top tier in Norwegian football, and uh, not to be boasting, but uh, I think I was the best player the year before he came. So it wasn't really a problem, to be honest. I imagine that because you're really explosive here. Uh, and and it's an, this is the first of the places that I, I want to stop and I, I'd like you to put yourself back in that mindset because you've done so well uh, both at Osters and at Brand that when after the 90 World Cup um, two players uh, his playing the same stops who, who largely is at you slightly different footballers but you're in the same position and one other I think a, a Larson I don't yeah, know yeah Peter Larson Peter Larson stops so there are gaps, and, and your form is so good that you're gonna you're gonna push your way through. But the end word is nepotism, and I, I, I didn't see it because I've seen you playing subsequently, so I know why you were picked. But it felt like you maybe had to address that because as you make the breakthrough in the national team, Tommy is your uncle, and it's clear that he picks you on quality and performance. But what have you had to bite back or fight back against that being asked of you in the past? Not really. Uh, obviously, a few headlines first time he picked me, but uh, then again, we're talking about football and uh, everything uh, falls to place, I'd say. I mean, either you're good enough and then you play or uh, you're not good enough and you're not going to play. It's not like if you have a big company where you have a thousand employees, uh, maybe you can hide away like uh, a son or... Uh, wife or a cousin or whatever but in football you you sort of, you, you get a receipt every week on the field uh, if you're performing or not and if I wouldn't have I would have been out of the team and that's it so I didn't think much of it uh, to be honest uh, 
but uh, hard enough time to focus about the, the teams who are going to play in, in the Euros 92 but, but you say that but it wasn't just the Euros because I my memory might be playing with me but I think I remember you being so kind to us in 92 knocking Scotland out of the under 21 championships so my memory is plus some research is that this, this explosive young kid who's been playing football outside Sweden gets brought in in a year where you play the under-21 championships and although you end up injured, Sweden reaches the final against Italy, against Cesare Maldini's Italy, Italy Paolo's dad, another dynasty. You, you then, and we'll stop off at these, you then play the Euros at home where Sweden are hosts, you beat Denmark, you beat England, which is a massive result for a country that's kind of obsessed over your childhood years of watching the first division of Premier League. You play four friendlies and you play the Olympics where you come within, as you said, three matches of a gold medal. 92, you know, as much as you, you, you're quite a, a laid-back, down-playing guy, 92 is an astonishing year for you. Oh, good year. My oldest son's born 92 as well. So bring that into the mix. Uh, in retrospect, it's a good year. It's a good year and went uh, really fast, really fast. Uh, I've gone through the ranks. I played in the under-17s, under-19s, under-21s, what have you, for Sweden. But uh, the call-up for for the full international team was a little bit of a surprise. But as you said, I was lucky enough to be in a position where two really good players quit after after World Cup 90. Uh, if they would have stayed on and they could have for another four or five years, maybe another one would have gotten an opportunity. But then again, if you're given the opportunity, you have to take it. And uh, I suppose uh, I suppose I did. Though I started playing a left-back for Sweden. Not like Roberto Carlos, but similar. Do you remember much about... Um, because with the Aberdeen theme, I could name you know Scott Booth and Ian Jess and... Stephen Wright and Michael Watt and goals, uh, and you sneak past us by a single goal. Thanks. But the Dutch, now a bit more serious, the Dutch team that you play against has De Boers and Offermars and a number of players who go on to do big things for their clubs and the international team, but less so maybe than the De Boers and Offermars. It's a very good side that you play against, and you, you knock out, you knock out Holland in the first chunk of that 92 footballing experience. Can you remember that experience? Yeah, I do. I do. I remember well. Uh, you forgot about the best Scottish players, though. Duncan Ferguson. Big Duncan was yeah, up against Yeah, Big Duncan yeah. was in that team as well. No, but I, he, I remember... He went off injured. He's the one who injured me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big surprise. <laughs> It was, a, it was a good percentage bet. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't hold it against him. Uh, no, but it was... Uh, and up to that stage, the Holland game, as we spoke about, which was the final qualifier for the Olympics, was probably the best... Uh, the biggest game I played in my life up, up until then. We lost 2-1 away. And by... I don't know... Luck, grit, determination, what have you, a little bit of skill as well. We beat them one nil at home and then we qualified for the Olympics. And uh, then we played Scotland in the semi-finals in Örebro, yeah. like small yeah. town in the middle of nowhere in Sweden. We played Scotland. I got injured in the first game. Could have 
could have played in Scotland, but I was injured. But then when the final was, uh, we played Italy, uh, we had our supposedly three best players away. Me, Patrick and uh, Thomas Brolin were with a full international team preparing for the, for the Euros. And I think, and I believe still, if we would have been in the team, we would have beaten Italy as well. Would have been under-21 European champion. Under-21 level, were you still playing centrally? or? No, no, centrally. 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 I only had like uh, three games in my life as a a left fullback and I was my three first Euro 92 games. England, Denmark and France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the only ones and please never again. Uh, (laughs) We played the, 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 the striker in... Holland at the time was Eric Myers. Decent career, but not not one of the not one of the famous famous Dutch players. But as you said, that the Boer brothers, uh, Overmars, Reggie Blinke, who played somewhere in Scotland, I think. Yeah, I've heard of wrong side of town though. <laughs> No, they, they had a good team. They had a good team. Uh, Newman, Newman played. He played in the right, uh, right side of town as well. Yeah, he was in that team as well. Yeah. We're going to come up against your next uh, adventure against Arthur, Arthur Newman in just a minute, eh? because these are big results. Um, who was quicker, you or Ophemars? Even though you weren't directly... You were, you were athletically very, very quick. Were you as quick as Ophemars? If we're talking about raw speed, yeah, for sure. Don't bring skills and uh, that into the mix. That, that, that's a whole different story, right? Yes, I've met one player in my whole life, as I can remember, who matched me or probably even beat me at raw speed. And that was uh, Tony Daly. You're 92, we're talking about again. He was quick. Aston Villa, yeah, playing for yeah, England. Yeah. And you're directly against him, right? Yeah, I was directly against him. And uh, good, the good thing about him, and he he might be the only player I played against who was quicker than me, but he had uh, more or less the same skill set as me as well. So it worked out <laughs> fine in the end. <laughs> i got bad news for you. Tony's a regular listener to the podcast. So good. No, no. If, if there you go. Don't want to adapt that. Okay. In my world, that's a big compliment. You get taken away from an under-21 side, which, if you look at the results, because the, the final against a good Italy side, uh, which will go on and retain their under-21 crown in Spain in the next tournament, um, playing against Spain in the final, it's a couple of years later, but it's against the Raul and De La Peña and Oscar Garcia and so on and so forth. When you get taken away from that side to prepare, obviously the thrill is big, but what was the country like? When, you, when a country like Sweden hosts a tournament like Euro 92. What was the buzz, the pressure? Did people take it calmly? Because you'll remember, for example, the only 10 European Championships have been in the British Isles of Euro 96. It was in England, and and everybody went absolutely crazy. It was the summer of love, great music. England made it to the semi-finals of Sweden, did it? What was the feeling like? What was the buzz like? Did did Sweden take it really like a fiesta? Yeah, they did. And uh, it was the first time we we were in the proper Euros as well. Because you remember, uh, because you're more or less my age, right? Uh, How it used to be. How it used to be. It it wasn't like 24 teams back then, like it is now. It, It was eight teams. 
competing in two groups and to qualify for Euros were for a small country like Sweden nearly impossible and and we didn't we got in as a host which is very unlikely to happen again uh, due to stadiums we have here in Sweden uh, but it was the first time Sweden played in the Euros uh, in the proper Euros and it was a buzz we had a new team coming into the tournament uh, underdogs for sure we had England and France in our group and Denmark who got in there in the last second uh, but it was a bust but as I said before I I had uh, enough on concentrating on, on on my own performance to be honest to more than enjoying like the bus around Who was your direct opponent for France? Papa Jean-Pierre yeah not bad decent player not bad yeah and if he wasn't and if he wasn't there Cantona rolled out on that uh, on that side, so yeah, two half decent players, I'd say. And but when when you think about that, that match, I think ends in a draw. It, it, it's probably if you had to win two games. Am I, did I exaggerate the de- degree to which growing up the Nordic countries were obsessed with England? And and, and there was a little bit like I can't remember exactly why, but there was a little bit of bad blood also. Um, that built up over the years between Sweden and England. I particularly remember immediately after World Cup '98, it was an outright battle um, in the national st- um, stadium in Stockholm. But but your win, I'm absolutely sure, must have felt like maybe when Scotland beat England, because th- there was this obsession with growing up watching BBC first division football, Swedes all over your country support Liverpool or United or Leeds or Arsenal. I don't care who it is. That must have felt like a, like a, a mini-final for you. Yeah, it was, and uh, especially due to the circumstances, it was the last game in the group stages. Uh, we knew if we win the game, we were in the semi-finals and England are out, and that, that brings another level to it as well. But, you know, uh, and I think it's the history between England and Sweden as well. At that time, I don't think... Uh, and that, that kept on for quite a long time. I don't think England beat Sweden in 40-odd years for some reason. We could lose against everybody else, but against England, I think I played them five times, never lost. And that kept on for a while as well. And, and, and it, was, it was a big thing. Playing England, everybody, the only international football we can watch in Sweden when I was young was the English, uh, well, not Premier League, but the first of it, uh, whatever you call it, the highest tier of English football. That's the only thing we could watch, and maybe a couple of European Cup finals. So it was a big thing to win against England. I must say, though, England 92, that's not the best side they ever put out. No disrespect to anyone. No, the, the purpose of this conversation is to be um, honest. I never abuse it, but honest. And it, it was a difficult time for me. I, I mean, I haven't done this research, but my memory tells me that that was Taylor took Lineker off, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, yeah, in his last game, last competitive game for England, yeah. I'm here to tell you about another podcast. Yes, we believe in biodiversity. It's from the makers of The Big Interview, and it's called Between the Lines The Stories Behind Great Sports Writing. Every episode takes a classic sports book or outstanding piece of sports writing and examines how the writer crafted their story. 
This is a weekly show, and the series so far has featured documentaries on the miracle of Castel di Sangro and Andrea Perlo's autobiography, I Think, Therefore I Play. There's also interviews with writers like Henry Winter, Simon Cooper, Andy Mitten, and David Goldblatt. This is Tim Parks on his classic tome, A Season with Verona. The Bishop of Verona invited the citizens of Verona to burn the book because I'd put all the blasphemies in it. So that was obviously good for sales. You know, I, I was very, very pleased about that. I wish they'd done it. It would have been a happy memory. On the Cordova, I would go to games. There would be loads of kids coming up to me saying, you know, I've never read a book before, but I really enjoyed this. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Is that, as a, as a defender, I'm okay, at that stage, you're still left-back, because I don't think you moved to centre-half until the Germany game, I think. But you see Lineker going off. Do you kind of go, take a box and go, okay, that definitely is one less threat? It is, it is. They brought on uh, Alan Smith, a very good player as well, who played uh, at Arsenal at the time, but uh, any time they take out Inglis top scorer ever as he was at the time it, it, it's it's a relief isn't it and uh, looking back at it it's nice to have played Gary Lineker the last time he played against uh, he played for England and won did, this, did help us a little bit because I, I, I'm not quite sure why Thomas Brolin has become a creature of mythology because there are many footballers who've been a little bit eccentric who've gained a little bit of weight, uh, who've got talent, and that, that describes some of the parts of him. But for some reason, everybody over about five, six years around Europe went crazy about him. He, it's like, this is the only guy who's ever behaved like this. Describe him. Tell us about him. Oh, but as a Swede, it's, uh, it's easy, because we, uh, we had great success in the Euros, as we talked about. 92 went to semi-finals, and then uh, two years after... Same again in the World Cup, went to the semi-finals. And in those two tournaments, he was by far, I'd say, our best player. So that's 
that's his status in Swedish football. And then he quit after a pretty serious injury at 28. So nearly. He could have been a rock star if he would have died at 27. But it's, uh, it's close to, isn't it? Close by. I, I like the Jimi Hendrix, Mama Cass Elliot, Janis Joplin reference. But I think people thought he was, I think he thought he was a rock star. And that's what I'm fishing for. Have we got him wrong? What was he like as a guy? Really good guy. Still a really good friend of mine, which I see a lot more of now. Uh, now I'm in Sweden after 25 years than I have uh, before. Good guy, humble guy. And for Sweden, for a few years, probably our best play in modern time, uh, except for except for the big one. I, I look, I'm glad to hear that because his skill and, and everybody, you know, it doesn't matter much to me, but I know people love flair and the goal celebration. So that little pirouette that he did, particularly when he was doing it for your country and for Parma, he, he really was the hot ticket. And also I think he was a guy who, even at his most, even at his elite level of football, was slightly differently shaped because he was small and he was like slightly built like a barrel. Yet his explosive movement in space and his ability to do things that he you didn't expect marked him out as special, I think. Yeah, it did. It, it did. And, uh, I mean, even in, in back in those times, he, he, how should I put it in a nice way, didn't look like an elite sportsman. Yeah. Is that a good way to put it? But uh, for Sweden, every time he played, he played fantastic. It was a short career. And by the way, it was the best play in uh, in the World Cup 90 for Sweden as well when he, when he broke through. So he's played three tournaments for Sweden and been the best player in each of the tournaments. So that, that, that's why his uh, big status in Sweden, I think. When you go away for four or five weeks to the States, to what everybody now likes to call the O.J. Simpson World Cup, I was there as a fan with my wife and my brother just nicking about on like an interrail. Uh, you could get now with trains, you could get then with planes. You paid $300 and you had a month's free air travel if you went standby, which now, of course, you know, with security concerns, everybody thinks, everybody thinks I've made it up, but I haven't. Um, again, before the matches and before the fact that you, you have Sweden's second greatest performance in the World Cup ever, um, what... What was, the, what, was, what was this experience of going together as a group to the States like, above and beyond the matches? Uh, being in the States, I mean, you've been obviously for a long time. It's, it's a fantastic place to visit. And we, or at least I, hadn't been there a lot before. We went on a pre-season, like a pre-World Cup tour to to Miami. And then we, play, we played two games in Miami, like... Uh, in January that year, January, February, and then a game in Mexico. And that, that was my whole experience of the, of the States. And our generation, we all grown up with American culture, aren't we? And uh, then we get drawn in the group. Who's going to play the first game in, the, in LA, which was pretty nice. We had a couple of weeks in San Diego before the World Cup started. Uh, and amazing experience and then we got to travel a bit we played a game in Los Angeles to Detroit which at the time uh, wasn't very nice everybody said downtown Detroit 
prohibited. Don't go in there, right? I had my wife uh, just across the border in Windsor in Canada, so I had to go through, or had to, I did a couple of times, but uh, it was like a war zone back then. And then we played a game in Dallas in 45 degrees heat at 12 noon, San Francisco, and then back to LA for another couple of games. Fantastic experience, big crowds uh, who knew nothing about football, to be honest, but I think we averaged on our seven games in the World Cup close to 80,000 per game. But back then, they didn't have a clue about uh, football or soccer or whatever, whatever they want to call it. But stadiums were great. Uh, crowds were big. And the life in the States as a 23-year-old was was good. Good experience. And then footballing-wise, it's pretty decent as well. What did they allow you to do? Because... I, I, I've been lucky enough to be TV producer with Spain on three tournament wins and I've noticed that certainly for uh, Luis Aragonés and Del Bosque there was a really good mix of double training sessions which weren't about fitness they were about ball work about the players were desperate to get on the ball so there was a second session there was some tactics there was lots of mini matches fine all that but both of them allowed a little bit of social time proper social time which as journalists for clubs now we're used to not really getting near and it's superstars and nightclubs and, and private jets and all that shit but with Spain it wasn't they, they, they just went out and, and under Dabowski he told them you big Portugal you're going out big lads my only rule is make the plane the next day back to the base camp that's it I, I, what were the rules for you there? We had uh, pretty similar rules. I mean, if you're uh, competing with your national team, you're going to behave more or less right uh, anyway. You're not going to do anything that damage your opportunity to win the next game. But we had pretty lax rules. We had a big uh, responsibility on the players to take care of themselves. And in between the training sessions, we I don't think we trained twice once over the World Cup because... You're there to compete. You need to be fresh for the games. We had pretty lax rules. We went out and about and uh, had a look over every town. And I'm not saying every bar because we didn't. But, you know, to grab a beer every now and again together, I think uh, in those days, that's the way it was. And it's about if you stay together for six weeks, you can't be locked in with the team for six weeks. Then it's impossible to inform, to perform. He left a lot of responsibility to the players. And I think we responded to it. We had a good time. We had a really good time. In training, not in matches, what, what were you beginning to think about that, this little dreadlock kid who played for Feyenoord? Because I guess you kind of had a massive exposure to Henke Larsson uh, prior to that. And certainly this would be regarded as his breakthrough tournament. In private, in training, what were you beginning to think of him? I played him a few times in in the Swedish league before we went there, and uh, he's the same age as me, but he broke through a little bit later than I in the national team in general, I think, but uh, then he lasted a lot longer than me as well. Uh, Really good player who had a hard time uh, getting a starting place because we had two good players up front. We had uh, Martin Dallin and uh, Kenneth Anderson. Kenneth scored... Five goals and Martin four. Uh, hard to get in that team, but obviously you could see you could see already that he was going to be a good player. 
Then again, they played for a dark side. But like he was made to play in midfield at Feyenoord, which is one of the reasons he he, he left. And I wondered if if you were seeing identical movement from him in training sessions because I think he I don't think it's talked about a lot but I think he was an immensely bright footballer who figured out a lot about the game and chose when I saw him chose a, a, a completely different attitude how to play and behave at Celtic compared to Feyenoord then when he went to Barcelona he had to relearn football and I've watched him relearn it when when Eto or Xavi wouldn't give him the balls when he was making a Celtic run and he was used to saying, I've made that run, give it, and Celtic did because he just scored and won them things. And I believe that probably you were saying a Henrik Larsson in 94, and when you played him previously, who was quite different from the Henrik Larsson in, in the latter two-thirds of his career. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think his uh, biggest uh, strength as a footballer was that he developed uh, into a thinking footballer. A thinking footballer who could adapt to to his environment, to adapt uh, against whoever he was playing, to the opponent. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't the quickest. He wasn't the most skillful. He didn't have the hardest shot, but he, he was one of the most clever footballers I've seen, at least from Sweden. Uh, uh, he was really good at that, and he kept evolving the older he got as well. And that's that's why, if you look at it now, his best years were probably his last years in football, because uh, he developed all the time. Really good player, but back then he was more as an out-and-out striker, I'd say. Out-and-out striker who wanted to get the the ball deep in front of goals and score. But they developed into a really, really good footballer. Again, I'm going to laugh at myself here because, um, and it's funny because when we're on television together, you laugh at me because I'm a romantic and the words are here, there. And I know you're playing ball with me at the moment. You're giving a little bit more than you would normally do, which I respect. But I'm still going to ask the same question, which which makes me happy. What kind of emotional experience was the Romania game? Because the World Cup is in the States, it's a 12.30 kickoff. It's extra time and penalties. You're winning, then you're not, then you're losing. I, I know you were desperate to take a penalty, absolutely. I bet you were absolutely disgusted that you were taken off just before the end. And eventually, tell a story from the Jockey Bjorklund point of view. Because that game, if you look at it, that's the kind of game that the World Cup... That's why the World Cup is is loved and cherished and lusted after. Yeah, to talk in uh, cliches, it's it's a roller coaster, isn't it? We beat Saudi Arabia like a few days before in uh, in even bigger heat. Yeah, in Dallas, uh, which is a nice draw to get in in the last sixteenth, isn't it? Uh, Saudi Arabia, and then by. A miracle, we get Romania instead of Argentina, which was, well, obviously, we watched the game. I think that's one of the best games in, in World Cup 94, when Romania beat uh, Argentina. We get Romania, we know we're on the roll, we know we, uh, we have a big chance of winning the game. Get, uh, get ahead, 1-0, great free kick. Best free kick. Uh, I wasn't involved, but I was on the pitch. Obviously, I wasn't involved. I was staying back at the halfway line, right? 
That was on the pitch at least. Great free kick, score 1-0. I think I got subbed because I had a problem with my groins in like the 80th minute or whatever. Another 10 minutes to keep them away from a goal. They score, start the extra time. Stefan Schwartz gets sent off. They score 2-1 and you think it's over. You think it's over and uh, you're disappointed. But you've been away for five weeks, so you see, like, you see a little bit of a silver lining. Oh, at least I'm going to go back to my, to my family at home. I'll see my family again, which I haven't seen for, for a while, right? Because you want to put a positive spin on it. And then uh, Kenneth equalizes on a great header, fantastic header, and he gets the penalties. And uh, when the penalties started, I was... Pretty comfortable being subbed out, I must say. <laughs> Though I would, I would have been tenth or eleventh, tenth or eleventh, I think, to take a penalty, <laughs> and it, it didn't go that deep, it didn't go that far. But how much, how much faith? Because if I'm not wrong, the keeper who's out there for Sweden that day is your teammate, or yeah, he's, he's, you're already at Gothenburg. It's it's Ravelli. So you know him, you, you, you maybe in training, even for fun, you've taken penalties against him, certainly you'll have watched him in training. Well, what, what, were your, what was your thought process as Romania come up against him? Because he does well. Before it started, I, I thought we were going to win. Because he, he, he was a really good goal, goalkeeper. He's most famous for his crazy antics in the World Cup night four. But he was a great goalkeeper. I, I watched him growing up because he played with my dad as well for quite a few years before I played with him. Uh, really good goalkeeper good on penalties I thought before it started we're going to win this and then we go and miss the first penalty uh, Håkan Mild missed the first penalty and then you know it's uphill from there but you know how it is it's a, it's a roller coaster. So, uh, one, one second you think then he saves one and it goes into extra penalties we score the first one you're in with a chance, they score again, etc. Yeah. What's a nice ending to it, though, I must say. Well done to the eccentric. What was the eccentricity of, of Ravelli? What, was, was that just because goalkeepers... Because whenever you hear him interviewed, he's a kind of straight, kind of serious guy. And he kind of looks like a bank manager or an accountant. No, no, plain and simple, he's a crazy guy. That's what it is. The appearance outside the pitch... He's a knowledgeable, uh, good guy in all, in all the senses of the word, but he's a crazy guy. On the pitch, he's always been a crazy guy, uh, a clown, what have you. He's been eccentric from when he started. Uh, at the games, you couldn't, you, you couldn't speak with him. In the games, you couldn't speak with him. He's unreachable. Unreachable. He's never made a mistake in his life. <laughs> He's one of those. He's one of those guys. But that's probably a good thing here when it comes to penalty shootout. He got a little bit of vindication as well in the World Cup 94. He played for Sweden for, I don't know, 15 years probably before. Since at least, yeah, I think he made his debut like 80 or something. I played with him in Gothenburg. He had a rough season up until the World Cup started. A shaky performance. Uh, First couple of games, and then it all clicked. He's still touring Sweden, doing speeches about saving penalties in '94. <laughs> He's made the most of it. What 
could you hear behind you? Was he a shouter? All the time, all the time. Shouting all the time, but I'd say everybody's played with him more than 10 games. They've ignored him. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the first couple of games you listen and then you know it's only bullshit coming out. You, you, you push the ignore button and that's it, more or less. <laughs> It's beautiful. You make him. It's it's Thomas. Thomas sounds like a future big interview guest. And and this is where things are unfair. I mean, you're you're not a guy who complains an awful lot. But you come out of that test, the 120 minutes, the heat, and and you're asked to how many days? Three days later, three three days. I mean, you're a coach now. What do medics say about the the recuperation time for athletes? To you know, three days is is your is your bare minimum, right? Three days is uh, it's the minimum, but it's all right if the other team has uh, three days as well. But they had five days. They had five days, we had three days. Uh, and I still don't understand why we played a team that we already met in the group stages in the semifinals. That should have been a final. Saying that, looking back on the semifinal... I wouldn't play it again. We lost 1-0 and that's a very, very flattering result for us. It could have been 5 or 6. It could have been 5 or 6. They, they were the better team. We can talk about preparation all of that. They would have beaten us uh, 9 times out of 10 anyway. But they had a slight advantage in, in the preparation. Yes. Okay. A clue for people listening in um, before we go to our sponsors' question. You're up against... Romario that day he makes the difference in a team that was they, they were if you look at their 11 irrespective of the final and how it was pretty boring their 11 their 15 their 16 it is exceptional so your point's well made but we're going to come to your revenge over Romario which happens but how how jockey from the inside how do you snap on again with the tiredness with the dehydration and win a third fourth place playoff where some guys I don't know any of your colleagues apart from once having insulted Patrick some guys might have been thinking out loud exactly what you said, it's time to go home and you go out there and you, you smack Bulgaria around how? First and foremost it would have been a, a shame to finish a, a good tournament with uh, two losses so the motivation was definitely there and for for a small country like Sweden to motivate yourself for a third place game, I think it's probably a lot easier than, than if it's France, England, Italy, Germany, what have you. Uh, that's a given. That's a given because we're a small country. It's our opportunity. And then the rumor said it uh, that the Bulgarians had a pretty big party after the semi uh, final against Italy as well. So that probably helped. Did you get a medal for third? What did you get for third? We, we got a medal. Bronze medal, I think. I think the Bulgarians got the same medal though, so it wouldn't have made a difference. It looked the same at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, we had a medal ceremony after the game and I'm pretty sure their medal looked the same as us. But I mean, in the end, in the books, we came third, they came fourth, uh, and I don't have a clue where the medal is anyway. So we, We've got sponsors who keep us alive. Thank you, Bet365. Um, this is a, a basic question, but it's interesting because throughout your career you've played alongside footballers like Brian Lydrop, uh, Gaza, Henrik, Jonas Tern, 
uh, Luis Miller for a while, but also Mendieta, Anglomar. We could go on listening because you've been good enough to play alongside special footballers. If I if I did, if I avoided the word best and said to you, who's the greatest player that you had the privilege of playing with? Who would you name? That's a tough one. You mentioned some really good names. Uh, some really good names. These are these questions you have to ask in uh, in advance before we start uh, the bloody podcast, right? So you get a few few minutes to prepare. I'd say for me, it's uh, I'd say the best. I wouldn't say the greatest. The best footballers outright are either Brian Ladrup or Paul Gascoigne as footballers, for sure. Uh, Mendieta, close to it, probably in the end achieved as much as these other guys. But I think as outright footballers, skillfully, perception, all of that, that that's the two best uh, footballers I've played with. Drawn out on, on ability to beat a man, special technique, or, or just the thing that makes your heart go jump when they when they pull off a trick or a skill, what are the things that guided you towards them? They were good at everything, I'd say. Brian obviously had a very offensive position, playing for Rangers, he could do a little bit whatever he wanted to, uh, but he did, he did, every game. Every game, scored a lot of goals, a lot of assists, beat his guy every time he wanted to. Uh, I'm not sure it was the right competition for him to play in. I, I think he should have been somewhere else. Because he, uh, he could have played anywhere else in the world and be world beater for sure. I think playing in Rangers in Scotland was probably a little bit too easy for him. Gaza, a little bit the same, but then you get the other side as well. The tackling, the ball winning, distribution. Uh, I think the first year I played with Gaza, it's, it's hard to beat. He scored 20-odd goals and must have had... 20, 30 assists as well. Performed every game, uh, even though we had the lifestyle he had. Well, I was going to say, it wouldn't Paul have been a much greater figure in football if he hadn't been so dull? Yeah, probably. 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 That's the word you uh, recognise with uh, Gaza. How does he measure on the Ravelli scale? In a different sense, as crazy, crazy as a bat as well, uh, as Ravelli, but but in another sense. Gas is probably the, the kindest player I ever played with. Uh, biggest heart, uh, wanted everybody to feel good, and I think that's uh, that's a little bit what became his downfall as well. Uh, he wanted everybody else to be happy around him and uh, should have taken better care of himself. But... Uh, Entertainer on and off the pitch, uh, but a generally good guy, and that's uh, that's what those two things. When people talk about Gaza nowadays, are easily forgotten. I mean, some people you you are my age, we remember the good footballer for sure, the great footballer. Uh, a few people got close to him enough to know he's a really really good lad, but most people remember the antics the, the clown and it's a shame it's a shame because as I said probably one of the best players I ever played with fantastic player
Thank you for listening to the big interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket. Who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here end of the lesson. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.